guys can turn to Romans chapter 9. We're entering a new section of the book of Romans. Romans 9, it's all about Israel. From here through chapter 11, 9 through 11, it's all about Israel. And I will confess, I will just admit to you guys, Romans chapter 9, Brian and I were still exchanging emails at 10 o'clock last night trying to figure out what in the world this chapter means. So um, if anything I say does not make sense to you, it's because it doesn't make sense to me either yet. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around this chapter. It's incredible, incredibly challenging, incredibly deep. Chapter 9 is all about Israel, the nation of Israel. Now, I had the privilege about 15 years ago to go to Israel with a friend's family. Actually, just for the price of airfare, I got to spend 18 days in the Holy Land. It was awesome. I saw incredible things, all of these amazing things in Israel. I got to hike up in in Gedi to the caves where David hid from Saul. I got to have a quiet time on the Sea of Galilee. It still ranks at the top of the list of my quiet times in life. Uh, I got to hike down in in Jerusalem to, to actually walk the streets along the Temple Mount that Jesus walked when he was alive. I saw incredible things in Israel. So many incredible archaeological ruins and castles and ornate ancient churches and shrines. I saw so many things, but you know what I didn't see much of? Christians. Very, very few Christians in the nation of Israel. Out of 5.9 million Jews living in the nation of Israel, only about 10 to 15,000 of them are Christians. Now that should shock us a little bit. That should surprise us. Uh, the Jews are God's people after all. Whole Old Testament written about them. And, and Jesus was a Jew and Peter was a Jew and Paul was a Jew and the whole early church was all Jewish. So what happened? What happened? Why are there so few Jews among God's people today? That's the issue that confronts us in Romans chapter nine. You see, last week we studied at the end of Romans eight these amazing, glorious promises that God makes to his people. I'll just refresh your memory. End of chapter eight, God promises, I will use everything in your life for your good. I will finish what I've started in you. And then the greatest promise at all, of all, right there at the end of chapter eight, I will allow nothing to separate us. God will allow absolutely nothing to separate him from his people, including his people. That's an incredible promise. That's a beautiful promise. But wait. As that promise is read, as Romans chapter 8 is read to the church in Rome, about 64 AD when Paul wrote the book, he gets there to the end of chapter 8 and he reads about how nothing will be allowed by God to separate God from his people and all of a sudden the Jews start looking around at each other. The Jews start looking around, and by this time, 64 AD, they, they notice it's not a lot of us anymore. Actually, we're a pretty small percentage of the church. Church is mostly Gentile, very few Jews anymore. Jews won't want to have anything to do with the Christian church. And so the Jews start to look around and wonder, what, wait a minute, Paul. How can you say that God will allow nothing to separate him from his people when the majority of his original people are separated? The majority of the Jews are alienated from God. Paul, how can you say that God is faithful when so many of us are alienated from him? For Paul, that was an intensely personal question. That was a really painful question for any Jew in the early church. Paul shares that pain. Look with me, chapter nine, starting in verse one. 
Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh." who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, who are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God bless forever, amen. Now I I always wondered um, there in verse three, Paul is not actually wanting to give up his salvation. In, In the Greek, he is expressing something that he knows can't come true. He knows he can't give it up. He's trying to help us understand the depth of his pain for the alienation of his brethren. He he struggles, he is broken up. Paul is heartbroken over the fact that the vast majority of the Jews are separated from God. This raises a serious problem for the promises. What about Israel? That is the question of chapters nine through 11. If you say that God is faithful, if you say that God is righteous, well, what about Israel? Really, it's a, it's a question of track record. It's the same question that many of us are asking ourselves in this political season in our nation. It's that time in our nation's life when we choose a president. And, and on the campaign trail, you may have noticed, candidates make a lot of great promises, don't they? They promise incredible things, awesome things. I will give you a job. I will eliminate the debt. I will raise social programs. I will never raise taxes. What, they make all these great promises, and then they get in office, and what do they do? Well, they forget those promises pretty fast, don't they? It's actually fascinating. There's a, a website, PolitiFact, you can go to. It actually has been, been tracking the promises that candidates have made from both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And guess what? Turns out, after hundreds of promises are made, both parties end up in the same percentage. They only keep a third of their campaign promises. Both almost identical Only keep a third of the promises. Now, if you give them the benefit of the doubt, you give them some credit and you say, we will also count any promise that you made that you actually made an effort to keep but just failed to keep for one reason or another. Well, the percentage goes up to two thirds, right? That's a little better, but that tells me that there's a third of the time that you don't even try to keep your promise. Well, you get to be my age. You see this happen time and time again and you become a little bit skeptical, I don't know about you, but I'm struggling this year with political skepticism. I hear candidates make promises, and I feel some doubt inside. Because I say, I've seen your track record. I've seen what will happen when you get in office. I can't depend upon your promises. And that's the same issue that faces the church. As they get to Romans 8 and they think about what about Israel, it is a question of God's track record. God, have you been faithful to Israel? If not, then how can we count on you? How can you depend upon God to keep his promises to his New Testament people, us, if he hasn't kept his promises to his Old Testament people, Israel? This is an incredibly important question. It gets down to the faithfulness of God. Was God faithful to Israel? If not, then you cannot depend upon him to be faithful to you either. Was God unfaithful to Israel? He made such great promises. He promised that he would allow nothing to separate him from his people. And yet the vast majority of Jews in Paul's day, as in ours, are separated from God. So was God unfaithful to Israel. That's the issue. That's a big question. 
It will take Paul all the way from the beginning of chapter 9 to the end of chapter 11 to answer that question. We're just going to look at the first part of his answer this morning, chapter 9. It's the, the first of three parts of an answer that Paul gives to this issue about Israel. What about Israel? It takes him three chapters. This morning we're just going to look at the first part of Paul's answer. Um, you can look with me starting in verse 6. Paul gives the answer in summary form, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Paul is saying, no. God has not been unfaithful to Israel. God has kept his promises. God is true. Now, how can Paul say that? He begins to give his proof, his justification. How is it that Paul can say that God was faithful to Israel? Verse six, second part of it. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Kind of interesting turn of language Paul's using there. What Paul is saying is, was God unfaithful to Israel? No, no. Because the promises were only ever meant for the elect among Israel. There's been a misunderstanding. Over the years, Israel has forgotten the nature of the promises of God. They were always meant only for the elect. Israel came to misunderstand that. It's similar to the misunderstanding you see happen between parents and their kids. Oftentimes, a parent will make a promise to a child that the child will misinterpret misunderstand, that the child will expand to think it's a promise that's always true or always applicable. No, son, I did not promise that every time we go to the store, I will buy you a toy. I just promised that one time when you were really good that I would buy you a toy on that one day. That was my promise. Not every day. Same kind of misunderstanding has happened here. Over time, Israelites began to think the promises are ours simply by genetics. Because you were a Jew by birth, because you have Jewish blood in you, you get all the promises of God. And Paul says, no, that was never how it worked. God's promises don't come to you based on genetics. They always come to the elect. Paul's language specifically, within genetic Israel, there is the Israel of choice. Those unique individual Jewish men and women whom God chose before time to be the specific recipients of his covenant promises. The promises were only ever meant for them, for the elect within Israel. That's always how it has worked. God's promises have always been only for the elect. Paul proves that by taking us all the way back to the beginning. The very first generation of Jewish people, the sons of Abraham. Paul takes us all the way back there. Look at verse 7. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Paul is contrasting the two sons of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was the oldest, Isaac was the second, and yet God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. They're both equally Abraham's sons. Both have the same blood in their veins. And yet God freely chose Isaac the younger rather than Ishmael the older to receive the promises. The promises have always been based on election, not on blood. That's true in the second generation of Israelites. Paul picks up the next generation starting in verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. 
Now you've got two brothers that are the same age, basically. They're twins. They're born on the same day. Technically, Esau comes out first, so he is the oldest. Uh, Jacob comes out next. They're, they're brothers. They're children of the same man. And yet God chooses Jacob, not Esau. God chooses Jacob, not Esau. And Paul, in this account, he gives us more details. He tells us why. Why does Jacob receive the promises and not Esau? He tells us right there in verse 10, well, it's not because of blood. Both have the same father and same mother. So that's not why Jacob was chosen. It's also not because of merit. Verse 11 is incredibly important. Incredibly important. Paul is telling us God made this choice before they were ever born, not based on anything that they would do, not based on any works, any faithfulness, anything about them. God chose Jacob, not Esau. Now, that's actually interesting. When you go back and look in the account in Genesis and you study the lives of these two brothers, you learn pretty quick neither of them were a peach. Both of them are pretty jerky guys. Esau, he's rash. Jacob, he's deceptive. Now, I don't know how you weigh those two sins, but they're both bad. Both of them were unfaithful. Both of them doubted God. Both of them are pretty jerky guys. So God's choice of Jacob had nothing to do with Jacob himself. It wasn't that Jacob brought something to the table that Esau did not. No, neither of them were a worthy choice. And yet God chose Jacob, not Esau. Jacob received the promises not based on blood, not based on merit, and not based on birthright. Esau was the first out, just by a few moments, but still the first out. And in the ancient world, the firstborn got the blessing. What Paul is telling us here is God is not a respecter of human society. He doesn't care what our rules and regulations are. He's not subject to them. He chose the younger rather than the older. He goes against birthright, against human standards. So Jacob received the promises, not by blood or merit or birthright, but simply based on election. God chose Jacob, not Esau. That's actually the point of the the really hard verse. Verse 13, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. We get tripped up here when we read it in English because in English those words convey emotion. I really love Jacob, but I hate Esau. In the original Hebrew, that's not what those words conveyed. It's the idea of favor or choice. Uh, the easiest way to translate it into English would be Jacob I have chosen, Esau I have not. That's what God's saying. It's not that he has some different emotions towards the two of them. It's that he chooses to favor Jacob with the covenant and not Esau. It was simply by God's elective choice. Not based on anything of worth or merit that either brother brought to the table. God simply freely chose to bless one of them rather than the other. So that is the answer to the question. Was God unfaithful to Israel? No, he wasn't. Because the promises were only ever meant for the elect among Israel. Not for the nation as a whole. Was only meant for those individual Jewish men and women whom God chose, not based on anything they would bring to the table, but simply freely chose out of grace to receive his blessings. That is what election is all about. God's free choice of men and women to receive his blessings. God's promises always go only to God's elect. That's, that's always true in the Old Testament as in today. Today, right now in the New Testament age, God's promises are only true for the elect. We saw that in the last couple weeks as we were looking at Romans chapter 8. We talked about this definition of this word election. Paul brings up the subject of election in Ephesians 1 and describes to us how election works. Ephesians 1, 3 to 5, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places 
even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. In other words, the reason that you are in God's family today is not because you chose God. It's because God chose you. It's because God freely chose you. Before time began, he chose you by name. He chose you as an individual to receive his blessings. God didn't look into the future and see, well, this person will believe in me, so I'll choose him. No, he just freely chose you. You believe because he chose you. Election is God's free, sovereign choice of individuals to experience the blessing of salvation. That's the answer to the question. God is always faithful to his promises, but his promises are only meant for the elect. That's the answer to the question, but Paul knows that's going to raise its own objection in our mind. That opens a whole can of worms for us, doesn't it? Start talking about election, and everybody says, what in the world? What in the world? We object to the idea of election. Paul, you're saying that God freely chose Jacob and passed over Esau, even though Jacob was no better than Esau. God, how is that fair? Paul knows this discussion of election is going to raise the question of fairness. And so Paul is going to hit pause on the question of what about Israel. He'll get back to that question in chapter 10. We'll go there next week. Paul wants to pause and he wants to deal with the objection he knows will come to our minds. How is this fair? How is this fair? Paul, you're saying that the only people who get to experience the covenant promises of God are the elect, those he chooses, not because they're worthy. And he passes over everybody else. God, how is that fair? Paul asks that question directly. First time in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? We hear this idea of election and we think, man, that is unjust. We live in a society that demands that we treat everyone equally. Everyone gets the same treatment. Everyone gets exactly the same treatment. If you are in power, you don't get to favor one person over another. So why should God get to do that? Man, God, election sounds incredibly unfair. Same question asked a different way. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Well, if this whole thing is by election, then how can God hold us responsible? If you don't get into heaven, how is it your fault? God didn't elect you. He's the one responsible, right? How is election fair? It sounds incredibly unfair to us. This is a very personal question for me. This was my struggle in high school and college. Different people have different issues that they wrestle with as they're trying to make their faith their own. For me, it was election. Throughout high school and college, this issue tore me up inside. The only relief I would find is to just try to ignore this issue for a while. And it would always come bubbling back up. I would read a passage like this about election and it would drive me nuts. And I would think, wait a minute, if election is true, then how is the universe not just some huge puppet show where God just chooses these people to move over here towards heaven and these people to move over to hell? How can I believe in a God who does that? That is so unfair. That question tore me up inside. Election seems so unfair. So what do we do with that? Paul knows we're going to object. He knows, especially us modern people, we're so individualistic, so dedicated to fairness, we're going to object. 
And so he answers our objection. He actually gives two answers to this objection about the the fairness of election, that it seems so unfair. First part of his answer comes starting in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for common use? I think what Paul is saying here, quite simply, first answer to the question, really the ultimate answer to the question, isn't election unfair? Well, wait a minute, God is God. And it's not our right to accuse him. God is God. Does election sound unfair? Who cares? God is God. God is the potter. You are the clay. God is infinite. He is almighty. He is all-knowing. He's the creator. You're just the clay. You have no right to accuse him of being unfair, of being unfaithful, because you are just clay. God is not subject to our opinions. He is not a servant to our questions or our doubts. God is who God is. He gets to do whatever he wants because he's God. God is God, and at the end of the day, we just have to bow our knees. We just have to say, God, I have no other place to go, so I accept you are who you are. It's interesting, in John chapter 6, the disciples faced this moment. John chapter 6, Jesus teaches some really, really hard stuff, including election. And as a result, almost all of his followers take off. They've heard enough, they abandon him. It leaves really just the 12 disciples and Jesus turns to them and looks and he says, are you also going to leave? And Peter speaks for all of them and says, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. That's exactly right. Peter understands. Lord, where else are we going to go? Yeah, I don't understand this whole election thing and it drives me a little bit nuts, but I've got nowhere else to turn. You're the only one who has words of life. So either I enjoy life or I reject it completely. That's the choice that ultimately I faced. It came to a head for me my junior year of college. This election thing just wouldn't go away. It continued to tear me up inside. I had a really bad year. I was really depressed. And one night I got on my knees before God and finally I confessed. Finally, I came to this point where I realized, God, I have nowhere else to go. I need life. You are the only source of life. So I have to accept you as you are. I don't get to make you in my image. I don't get to change who you are. I either take you or I don't. I need you, so I accept you. Even though I can't explain you, even though this thing still drives me nuts a little bit, I'm done. I'm on my knees before you. I accept you because you are God and you get to do what you want to do. That's the ultimate answer to the question. God is God and we have no right to accuse him. He's God, we're the clay. At the end of the day, you bow the knee and say, okay. That's the ultimate answer to the question. And actually, it's the only answer that God needs to give. He, he could have ended right there. That could have been it. That's the only answer we deserve. Um, fortunately, out of grace, God goes a lot further. God gives a second answer through Paul. He wants us to know more. Not just take it at my word, although that is true, but God wants us to understand this election thing a little bit better. He wants to take us a little deeper into it to see it through God's eyes. Paul reveals some incredible stuff here. The second part of his answer to our objection isn't election unfair. First part, well, God is God. He gets to do what he wants. Second part of the answer, look with me, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on 
and God who has mercy. Here's what Paul is saying. Is election unfair? You bet it is. Election is unfair. It's not fair. It is merciful. So is God. Basically, Paul is simply dismissing our objection here. You want election to be fair? No, it's not fair. Quit asking for it to be fair. Election is not fair. It's merciful. Same with God. God is not fair. You don't want a fair God. He's not fair. He is merciful. What do we mean by fair? Fair means that you give everyone equally exactly what they deserve. Everyone equally exactly what they deserve. Paul's saying that's not your God. Your God is not fair. Your God has never been fair. Your God is merciful. Biblically, mercy, this idea of mercy, it means to withhold the punishment that someone deserves. That's what God is. Our God is not fair. He is merciful. He is always merciful. He is merciful to all people. Paul begins by saying he's merciful to Israel. The nation of Israel, who at the moment, the majority of whom are separated from God, God has been incredibly merciful to them. Paul brings that up in verse 15. Verse 15, he quotes this this quotation from Moses. It's actually from Exodus 33. Fill you in on a little background. Exodus 33 is right after Exodus 32, where the nation of Israel did the whole golden calf thing. Golden calf thing. They cast this idol that they worship. Well, um, that's commandment number one. Thou shalt have no other gods. They blew it. Right off the bat, they totally blew it. Most serious sin. So let me ask you, if God was fair to Israel, what would they have gotten in Exodus 32? Death. Every single one of them. That would have been the end of the nation of Israel. Every single one of them, except Moses, who was off doing something, all of them would have been dead at that moment. Because that's fair. That's what they deserve. Give everyone equally what they deserve. You all die. But they don't have a fair God. They have a merciful God, a compassionate God who withdraws his hand of destruction, who preserves them, who relents, who shows them mercy. And then God says to Moses, Moses, bro, if you want to know who I am, this is it. The core of my being is what? Mercy, compassion. That's what I love to give. That's who I am, a God who shows mercy. God has been merciful to Israel. He has also been merciful to us. God has always been merciful to us. That's where Paul goes in verse 16. He steps back and looks at humanity as a whole. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And the implied subject here is receiving the promises of God, like salvation. How do you get salvation? Well, it's not based on how much you will for it, how much you desire for it, and it's not based on how much you run for it, how much you chase after it. It's based on God who has mercy. By using that word mercy, Paul is reminding us salvation, like all of the promises of God, is not what you deserve. You get it by mercy, not by what you deserve. What do we deserve? At the end of the day, what do we deserve from God? Not his promises, we deserve wrath. We deserve God's punishment, his destruction. Now, I'll take you back, Romans 1 through 3. That was the whole point. Paul proved to us in no uncertain terms that every single human being accepting Jesus Christ deserves only wrath from God. Romans 3, I'll just summarize uh, the most important verses. As it was written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
In Ephesians 2, Paul says the same idea. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. None of us deserve God's salvation. None of us deserve his promises. We all deserve wrath, every human being. I think that realization will help us correct a faulty view of election. Election is not a two-way street. Election is not God sitting in eternity past looking at a mass of humanity and choosing these ones to move over towards heaven and these ones to move over to hell. That's double predestination. We don't hold to that. That's a misunderstanding of the nature of human beings. When God was in eternity past, looking forward to what humanity would be, he didn't see a bunch of neutral people standing around waiting for his election. What did he see? He saw all human beings running from him. Remember Romans chapter one. God revealed himself in creation and how did we respond? Every single human being raises the fist and says no. I don't want that. I don't want that God. I don't want his rules. I want nothing to do with him. I'm running the other way. Election is a one-way street. In election, God in eternity past looks forward in the future and sees all of humanity running from him. All of us willingly running towards hell. We don't hold the double predestination because God doesn't need to predestine the other way. We don't need any help to get to hell. We're all running there willingly. We do that on our own. We do the whole rebellion thing fine ourselves. God doesn't need to play a hand in that. No, God sees all of us running from him, all of us rebelling, all of us running towards the cliff of hell, and in grace and mercy, he reaches down and grabs certain individuals kicking and screaming and turns them around to see the beauty and truth of the gospel. That's election. God reaches into the massive rebellious humanity and turns some of us around. He does it purely out of grace, Purely out of grace. Now, why did he choose me and not my neighbor? I have no earthly idea. No idea. Bible doesn't tell me. The Bible does tell me it's not because I was a better candidate. It's not because I would believe and he would not. No, we were all equally rebels. We were all running from God. God didn't choose me because I would believe. I believe because God chose me. Faith is a gift. It comes to me as a gift because God chose me freely, out of grace. It's not because I'm more worthy. It's because God has freedom in his mercy. He can show mercy to whomever he pleases and for whatever reason he chose you. Not because you're more worthy. Not because you're a better candidate. He just freely chose you. He chose to reach down and grab you, kicking and screaming, to use the words of C.S. Lewis, and yank you around so that you would see the beauty and truth of the gospel and believe. That's why you're in the family of God. Election is a one-way street. In election, God shows us mercy. Incredible mercy, incredible grace. Though we choose to rebel, he reaches down and grabs rebels and turns them around. So God is merciful to Israel. God is merciful to us. Finally, perhaps the most shocking part of this passage, God is even merciful to and through the unelect. Even to those whom he does not choose, he is still merciful and compassionate to them. Look with me. Let me prove that to you. Paul walks us through that in the remainder of the passage. Paul begins with a specific example of a particular unelect man named Pharaoh. Look with me, verse 17. 
For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Okay, now Paul is going to step back and look more generally at all of the non-elect. Look with me starting in verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles." Okay, what I want to do is just start with the hardest verse. Let's go right after verse 22. That's the hardest one. Causes all of us headaches. Keeps us up late at night. What is going on there? If God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath or vessels who deserve wrath, prepared for destruction. That last phrase is the hard one. Prepared for destruction. It's Paul saying that God created certain men and women just to destroy them just to send them to hell. Is that what he's saying? Well, actually, it's very helpful to contrast that verse with verse 23. Verse 23, you have the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. You miss this in English, but those, that word prepared, it's different in verse 22 than it is in verse 23. It's, different Greek, it's a different Greek word. Verse 23, prepared, is, is to actively make something to shape it and form it. And the subject is explicit, it's God. God formed you for mercy. You didn't do it yourself. You really had no part to play in it. God made you to be a vessel who would receive mercy. God is the active player there. But it's different in verse 22. It's a different verb. It doesn't mean so much to make or shape, but it means to be ripe for, to be ready for. These are vessels ripe for destruction. And the actor, the agent is unnamed. Doesn't say that God prepared them. Is it God who did it? I don't know. Is it them who did it? Paul doesn't say. They could have prepared themselves. God could have prepared them. Paul leaves it uh, ambiguous because I think he wants us to understand. Actually, it's both. Who prepared these vessels for destruction? Was it God? Yes. Or was it them? Yes. It was both. Both actively participating in preparing them for destruction. It takes us back to Romans 1. You remember Romans 1, 18 and following. We see God in creation and we all say no. We reject him. We choose to worship ourselves. What does God do in response? He turned them over to their sin. Three times that same uh, give and take happens between God and these unelect people. They reject God. God rejects them. Both are active in preparing them, making them ripe and fit for destruction. Same thing in Pharaoh. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's interesting. Go back to Exodus and look for that verb hardened. You'll find it's used often of Pharaoh and sometimes it's used of God hardening Pharaoh and sometimes it's used of someone else hardening Pharaoh. Who was that? Pharaoh. Often it's of Pharaoh himself hardening his own heart. So Pharaoh was hard. Was it God's fault or his fault? Both. Both God and Pharaoh were active in the process of hardening Pharaoh and preparing him, making him ripe for destruction. So that's what's going on here. That's what's going on here. I want you to notice, though, the key point of verse 22 is not the last phrase. Key point of verse 22 is not even God's wrath, which these vessels deserve. What's the key point of verse 22? God's patience. What if God patiently endured these people who are ripe for destruction? God's holiness just desperately wants to crush them. He wants to wipe out Pharaoh because Pharaoh is such a bad guy. 
And yet in mercy, he is patient. In mercy, he holds back the destruction that Pharaoh deserves. God is merciful even to the unelect. He's merciful in showing them patience. I love how R.C. Sproul puts it of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was already wicked. Pharaoh already had an evil heart out of which came evil continually. Pharaoh delighted in doing evil. God does not cause men to sin, nor does he make them bad. Rather, he simply lets them harden themselves as a punishment for their wickedness. God allows Pharaoh to harden themselves, and yet in the process, God is patient. He is compassionate to Pharaoh. He doesn't give Pharaoh what he deserves. God wasn't fair to Pharaoh, or Pharaoh would have been dead in Exodus 4. God is patient. He is merciful. He's merciful to all the unelect. Peter puts it this way, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. By all he means all, all men, even the unelect. God wants even those whom he does not choose, he still wants them to repent. He has nothing but hope for the unelect of the world. He desperately desires them to see the gospel and believe. He knows they won't. He knows that they will continue to run from him, but it doesn't change the heart of God. He doesn't have animosity towards them. He has love. He has mercy. He wants them to repent. So to all people, even the unelect, God gives the mercy of time, the mercy of patience. He he does not give them immediately what they deserve. He acts in patient mercy towards them, and he gives them other mercy as well. Perhaps the biggest mercy of all, not only does he give them the gift of time, he also gives them the gift of his son. John put it this way in 1 John 2, 2. He that is Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. God didn't just send his son to die for the elect. God sent Jesus to die for every person who has ever lived. Unlimited atonement. Jesus died for all. Even those whom Jesus knew would reject him, still Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for them. God shows nothing but mercy even to the unelect. He gives them the gift of time. He gives them the greatest gift of all, the gift of his son. Election is not God is a capricious demon choosing mercy for some and hatred for others. It's mercy to all. He just gives more mercy to certain of us. Don't know why, but still mercy to all. And not just mercy to all, not just mercy to the unelect, but also mercy through the unelect. Did you notice the reason why God hardened Pharaoh? Not because God didn't like Pharaoh. Not because God thought Pharaoh was a jerk. God hardened Pharaoh. Why? Look back. Tells us specifically, verse 17, to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. God hardened Pharaoh, not because he didn't like Pharaoh, but because he knew by hardening you, I will have an opportunity to demonstrate my power for salvation to all the world. And indeed he did. Because Pharaoh hardened his heart, God did incredible things that the entire world heard about. It's actually amazing. A generation later, the Israelites are on the border of the promised land. They spend spies into the city of Jericho who meet a prostitute named Rahab who has faith in God. She aligns herself with Yahweh and she tells the spies why. Because we have heard what your God did to Egypt. Why did God harden a Pharaoh's heart? So he could save a prostitute's heart a generation later. It was always about mercy. God's not a capricious demon. It's always about mercy. Even those he chooses not to elect, he's not electing them so that they can extend his mercy to others. 
That's the point of the potter clay thing in verses 22 and 23. Why is God patiently enduring these vessels who are ripe, ready for destruction so that he might display his glory to the vessels meant for mercy? so that he might extend his mercy further. And that's ultimately what's going on with Israel today. Why have the vast majority of Israelites in Paul's day, as in ours, rejected their savior and separated themselves from God so that the gospel could come to us? I'm not a Jew. I'm a Gentile. I'm here this morning in a church in College Station, Texas, on the other side of the world from Israel because God hardened Israel. He hardened Israel and Israel became persecutors of the faith rather than embracers of the faith. And because of persecution, the church fanned out. It spread out throughout the world and Gentiles came. They came in, they accepted the gospel. The church grew among Gentiles until it finally made its way over here. We're the recipients of mercy because Israel was hardened. God is always about mercy. God is not a fair God. Thank God he is not a fair God. If it was fair, we would all be in hell right this moment. He's not fair. He's merciful. He's merciful to all, even the unelect. How do we respond to this? This morning we get to take communion. The men who are helping with communion can go to the back and get it ready. While they're serving communion to us, I want us to to respond to Romans 9 in worship. That's what it's about. It's not about a theological controversy. It's not about some theological debate about election. It's about worship. I want to encourage you to take this time as communion is passed just to thank God first and foremost for the confidence you can have because of Romans 9. God has always kept his promises. God is a promise-keeping God. He has always kept his promises. He's kept his promises to Israel, so he'll keep his promises to you. You can count on God. You can have confidence. Thank God for that. Second, thank God for his mercy. Thank God for his mercy. Thank God that he is not fair, that he has not been fair to you, that he has not been fair to any person. Thank God that he's a God of mercy, a God who in mercy looked into the future and chose you by name. He chose you by name to receive his gift of salvation, not because you're worthy, not because you would ever do anything that would make you worthy, but simply because he is a God of mercy. He chose you by name to receive his compassion. Thank God for that. Let's take this time as as the band leads us. You can either participate in worship or you can just bow your head and pray and spend this time thanking God for who he is. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you that you are not a fair God. We thank you that you are a merciful God that you always give compassion and mercy where judgment and wrath are deserved. We thank you, Lord, that for no reason in and of ourselves, nothing that we bring to the table, we thank you that you freely chose us in grace and mercy to be saved. We thank you for the hope and the peace and the confidence that election can give us. Father, we thank you that your son willingly shed his own blood, his own body for us, Lord, we deserve your punishment. Instead, you gave us your son. 
Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Father, we pray that as we go from here that we would be thankful people. Help us to understand how privileged we are, how blessed we are to know you. I pray, Father, that we would have confidence. I pray that we would have hope. I pray that we would be thankful and I pray that we would share this message of thankfulness with others, Lord. I want to read those first verses in Romans 9 as Paul laments over the Jews and Father, I feel so convicted over that. How often do I lament over the people, the men and women around me who don't yet know you? Do I actually say to you that I could wish myself accursed on their behalf? Lord, I pray, break our hearts for those who don't know you. Help us to desperately desire that they would come to know the mercy that we have received. I pray, Father, that we would share the truth, the good news of the gospel, that Jesus died for them and rose from the dead, that they can have eternal life as a free gift. I pray that we would be people who share that good news, who know it, who believe it, who have hope and joy and peace through it. Thank you for your son. Thank you for what he's made possible for us. In his name we pray, amen. See you guys next week.